You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website, as well as download our free Fool or Forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? TheElephantInTheRoom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. You've heard us bang on about the risks of buying brand new apartments and houses now for close to 100 episodes. We've talked about negative equity, building defects, poor design, unfair contracts, lack of scarcity, the list goes on and on. And it seems that a large part of the problem has been our planning controls, not just in terms of failing to protect owners from buying into buildings that start falling down, but failing to stop them being built in the first place and failing to ensure that medium and high density living is actually pleasant for its inhabitants. And even the well-designed and built apartments don't tend to make good investments. Developers might make a profit, while many investors lose money in both real terms and via opportunity cost. All that said, we do need more construction, not just to provide roofs over the heads of our growing population, but to keep our economy ticking over. In this episode, we pick the brains of someone well-placed to give us insights into how the big boys see this world. Rod Fearing is the CEO of Fraser's Property Australia and the chair of the Green Building Council of Australia. Rod has over 30 years of property industry experience, during which he's also held senior roles within Len Lease's master plan community, venture capital and retirement living and aged care businesses. For those of you unfamiliar with Fraser's, they bought out Australand in 2014 and they've been around like 90 years. Now they're one of Australia's leading diversified property groups and is the Australian division of Singapore-based Fraser's Property Limited. Their activities cover the development of residential land, housing and apartments, commercial, retail and industrial properties, investment, property ownership and management and property management. We've been saying we'd like to interview a developer for some time now and we've hit pay dirt, a very serious player indeed. Thank you so much for joining us, Rod. Thank you with that introduction. Uh, hopefully it'll be a civil conversation. We'll see how we go. <laughs> Thank you, Rod. Um, no, I really appreciate it. We, um, you know, especially phrases of, you know, there's some amazing developments going around like Central Park, et cetera. Um, but I think, you know, what we're seeing now is it's a bit of a challenging year right now for a lot of developers because there's been a lot of building issues that have come out, which we don't probably need to name. But how are you as a business kind of approaching that and how do you think that's going to potentially play out to the to the industry more broadly? Oh well, yeah. There is plenty of uh, plenty of challenges in the uh, in the in the sector. No question about it. Um, I don't mind you naming them. I mean, the uh, flammable cladding has been an issue, which has been around for a number of years, and that's um, having a, a wash through effect as as defective cladding is effectively now has to be addressed mm. uh, and removed. Uh, then you've got um, building failures in terms of structure, uh, structural failures for a variety of reasons, and mm. uh, and, and it's a mistake, I think, to just throw a blank throw a blanket over. Uh, structural defects as uh, as all of a similar cause because mm-hmm. they have uh, quite uh, idiosyncratic and local 
conclusions to them. But you know, I'm delighted with the uh, the response that governments have taken. Uh, they've taken this uh, this uh, area on seriously. Mm. The um, you know the appointment of David Chandler uh, to oversee the uh, the development of uh, of responses to uh, to these issues. Uh, David's got great credibility in the industry, uh, knows his stuff, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I think we'll we'll approach it in a very uh, practical way because that's what we need from the industry a uh, mm. practical response. But I think it's fair to say my experience is that the the regulatory and um, uh, and uh, planning frameworks tend to cater for a very low level of or low common denominator, if mm. you like. And unfortunately, I think uh, there will inevitably be the need to start to tighten up uh, the mm. regulatory framework. Um, to demand more uh, of developers and builders uh, alike, uh, and put, if you like, the uh, the customer at the centre uh, of um, of the equation to ensure mm-hmm. that there is an assurance uh, for them to be satisfied and assured, if you like, that uh, the product they're buying is actually um, not what's represented uh, and it performs over time. So you know you could argue that's a bit self-serving for the larger end of town, mm. um, but on the on the downside of that is though that uh, the supply constraints inevitably, mm-hmm. as there are fewer potential players uh, in in the game, um, that will garner a response uh, from the industry. I think, and what you'll find is that the industry, the building industry particularly, is incredibly resilient, incredibly mm-hmm. innovative. And as a consequence, we'll start to attract people into that sector that is uh, that are capable of performing uh, at the highest standard. And I think mm-hmm. that's a positive long-term uh, outcome. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, you know, it's not just in the in building and construction, but it seems to be that some governments like to lower the barrier to entry to a lot of industries. And, I mean, look, I, I say this in real estate, you know, mm-hmm. that they've lowered the barrier to entry and in a number of ways in licensing for argument's sake. And they don't want to put a burden on industry. And that's actually words taken from one of the government representatives who Mm. said that to me. And yet, if you don't burden the industry, you're going to be burdening the consumer, aren't you? Well, it depends on what you call a burden. Um, In your introduction, you referred to the planning system. Uh, The planning system really is not at fault here. It's the building uh, regulatory environment, which is a part of the overall built, uh, built form uh, regulatory framework, but planning really has limited impact on the uh, on the building component. Uh, planning tends to be about land use, tends to be about uh, amenity, uh, and mm. the uh, and uh, not so much about structure uh, and um, uh, supply chain performance, etc. Mm. Which is where the building uh, building industry lives um, in its mm. procurement processes. So, so I think yeah, there are lots of burdens on industry, but. I don't know whether we're sort of um, uh, we're we're becoming we're, we're losing our edge, but yeah. But to a certain extent, uh, all reputable builders and developers uh, take the view of delivering. They're, they're proud of their product. Yeah. They're they they're, uh, they don't want to be deficient in an area, uh, and uh, we want. Uh, it's not fun um, in dealing with uh, your own failures. Mm. Uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine years down mm. the track, it's it's not good business. Uh, and it does nothing for your brand. So, so those aspects, I think, um, the word burden, yeah, okay, there are compliance obligations which sometimes you scratch your head about and say, well, you know, is this really achieving the end? Yeah. But as long as we keep focus on on the purpose or the outcome mm-hmm. uh, and a solution uh, based approach, then it's not a burden. It's actually for the right reasons, mm-hmm. and you know, the the industry will come along with that sort of approach. Whereas if it's high handed. 
uh, and really of no value and no one can actually define what the value is in, right. the, in the obligations imposed, then that's where we have difficulties. So I'd love to just, um, you mentioned there just around, you know, years down the line, seven, eight years down the line where you've still got potentially problems with the building, et cetera. And it makes sense, you know, if you're, if you're there to make a quick money, you've entered the industry, you're just trying to make money in the boom, um, maybe you're missing, you know, things. But if you're not around in seven years' time, you've made your money and you're gone, you don't care. But for businesses like Fraser's, you'll plan to be around for a lot longer than seven years' time. How does the fixing of defects, you know, really work? Because I think that's one of the biggest fears people have when they buy an apartment, that years down the line they're going to be saying, look, oh, actually, no, we're getting problems how does it actually work with a developer and yeah. who's actually liable and how does it play out? Look, the, the trite, this sounds like a trite answer, but the, the best solution is to not have them. Um, so it's what you do before you even hand over to a customer um, that really matters. We work on a, uh, on a pre-handover process which runs around about six to 12 weeks so that we invite, uh, we do our own inspections uh, with our own teams and we have an objective. We will not even ask a, a, a customer who's pre-committed um, to uh, come and inspect the property as a pre, pre-settlement handover. We won't even ask them unless we're sub five mm. uh, defects. I, I heard one comment that every building has a defect, but what we're talking about here is that we're talking... Um, Doorknob or uh, something like that. Uh, paint discoloration, yeah, a chip yeah, in, the, in, yeah. the, in a tile, et cetera, things of that nature. Mm. Nothing fundamental because, frankly, uh, most consumers would not know uh, if there was a structural defect um, yes. uh, if, it, if it was presented to them in the face. Yep. The, so defects in terms of, you know, those small cosmetic items really uh, just don't have them. But, you know, take a take a um, a, a good self uh, customer centric approach towards managing uh, the uh, the the lack of defects at the outset. And then when the uh, customer goes through, bring your technical people in by all means and mm-hmm. go through the process, because the last thing we want is a dissatisfied handover process mm-hmm. when you've handed over then we do another uh, another check around about three months later because what you see on a sort of an hour and a half, two hour sort of uh, walkthrough is one thing. One, you're living there and, you know, things, you, you get used to how things yeah. work. Mm. Um, the oven's not quite uh, performing the way it should have been or, you know, the um, uh, we, we've put um, uh, electrical connections in the wrong place, that sort of stuff, which yep. everyone's had those experiences. Mm. That's why you do a three-year follow-up, a three, three-month follow-up, uh, if you like. But is that legislated or is that no, no, you no. do as a That's business? No, no, that's customer service. Yeah. Mm. But then the more important things are what's going on in the structure itself yep. and around it. Uh, and those are the things that things that um, that people get very, very fearful about. And you've seen a lot of media uh, about that at the moment. So it's the uh, it's the design and the oversight of the design processes. That's the uh, the design development piece. You know, we've introduced structural engineering uh, oversights um, for uh, uh, from from day one. So you're working through uh, the ability of the of the of the design team and the construction team to understand how the structure actually works, how the hydraulics and mechanical systems work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So it's not really a change for us because it's sticking to your processes and making sure your processes are adequate uh, and more than adequate, uh, overkilled, if you like, to ensure that you're getting your fire sign-offs when you want them. Because if you don't, it takes you time. A fire sign-off is an absolutely critical thing to have. Yeah. And if, you, if you've not got the fundamentals in place, it can take you months uh, to, get, to come in compliance. So when you've, when you've been in this long enough, you know that's just not something you can entertain. 
So it's the systemic processes that you use uh, from the design uh, inception process that gives that level of assurance. And yep. that's, that's, that's something that um, you can talk about. You mm. can put it in a, in a document and what have you, but people usually don't understand what it means mm. only uh, in the end that nothing, nothing untoward happens. And so that's, it's 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 validated by the lack of uh, of excitement, if you like, which uh, which is a good a good thing. Because it is that's an interesting thing too. Because like you say, when when a, a buyer walks through a property and they're picking out their faults, being chip paint, chip coal, that sort of stuff, and they're the sort of obvious little things, and then maybe there'll be some settlement cracks and stuff like that, which you know it's built on ground and you know some of these things, and then you've got different materials next to each other. So of course, they're going to expand and contract differently. So there's all that sort of cosmetic stuff that. Most people can see and they've got no real idea of whether it's serious or not. Some of it, you know, may or may not be serious, but it's all the stuff underneath, obviously, how the building's been built in the first place. And I think, too, that, you know, you've got, like, Mascot Towers, for argument's sake, you know, 12 years after the event, you know, God knows what's been hidden all that Mm. time. But we don't, most people don't know, Mm. you know. Most people got absolutely no idea even how a single-storey house stands up, you know, let alone a multi-storey building. So... In terms of the crisis of confidence, because let's face it, there's been so much negative media Mm. and, you know, with good reason, obviously, there's Mm. been serious problems. But how does a a consumer, how how does a buyer gain that confidence that the building, whatever building they're buying into, and not even brand new, but it could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years old maybe, Mm. is actually, that's not going to happen? Well, if it's 10, 15 uh, years, that... That goes with the territory. Buying established, um, there are no warranties and assurances associated mm. with that unless the um, the renovation work has been recently done and what have you and you still get builder's warranty uh, that mm. runs uh, uh, for that. Um, but we, we deal in new. Um, yeah. So, so uh, the but first... Your, but your buildings aren't always new. You know what I mean? Like someone buys a building, the phrase is built. Sure. Next year, it's not new. Yep. When they go to sell it, it's not new, yep. but it's still their, yep. their, pro, you know, their responsibility, their problem. It so it comes back to the same <clears> things. <throat> I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the structural integrity of a building is the structural integrity of the building. And so uh, I think what you'll see, and one of the things that we're, we're looking at is how do you actually explain in a, in a without going down the sort of uh, Apple, uh, yeah. iTunes agreement sort of version of, you know, 500 pages of whatever yes. it is and yes. who'd, who'd know, um, how we can explain the processes that are employed to enable uh, you to be able to be confident that the building is designed and built as as designed yeah. Yeah. and that that design has integrity, et cetera, et cetera. And when you're doing multiple buildings in, uh, in, a, in a precinct, um, like Discovery Point down at Woolai Creek, that was 2003 to 2019, 16 years. Mm. Um, Central Park, for instance, uh, started in 2007, finished uh, just about finished now. Mm. Yeah. So 12 years. Typically our projects are 10, 15 years long. So when you're in, involved in that style of development activity and that scale, You've got to get it right from day one because, you know, you're going to be there 10 years out when warranties and what have you, and yes, two or three generations of buyers have moved yeah. through. If if you've not got that right, um, you're going to have real, real difficulties finishing the project um, mm-hmm. because your reputation will have gone down the tubes. But but that's all right for us to say in multi, um, uh, multi-building precincts. But going back to your, uh, to your um, uh, analogy about um, single dwellings, again, you know the, the the processes and the design processes associated with uh, with single dwellings are 
um, in in world terms as, as up there with the best. I mean, we're not we're not we're not. Australia does not operate at a low common denominator when yep. it comes to mm. our ability to be able to deliver product um, and deliver product at a uh, at a very affordable price uh, and um, with with structural integrity. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are exceptions, and the the point I wanted to make is yes, you can talk to Mascot or Opal Tower and and uh, projects like that. The danger is that everything gets thrown into that basket. Yeah. yeah. And when you consider the number of transactions, the number of buildings being delivered, 135, oh, sorry, um, um, 235, 236,000 dwellings yeah. constructed per annum, mm. uh, I don't think they should all be um, treated in the same way. But the, the performance of the industry at those volumes is actually quite credible in world terms. I guess it's hard now because there's a bit of a PR problem, though, that you know, the papers latch onto it, right? Sure, and sure. you've got to, you know, as soon as there's, um, these things were never reported on like the one in Erskineville or Rosebury or something. Like it just was hidden. It wasn't actually front page news, but as soon as there's a few of them, they just keep on coming out. Mm. And un- unfortunately then you get most of society will start believing that. So how is the building industry going to kind of flip that on its head and create cr- um, confidence again? Because, you know, there is going to be a more of a demand that people aren't going to be able to afford you know, houses, they're going to want apartments or townhouses or house and land packages. And how is, how is you know, the industry going to attack this problem and kind of really flip it on its head and get confidence back? Yeah, well, I, I think it sounds a bit boring, but we've just got to actually, um, uh, to, to be better able to explain, um, you know, the systemic approach you take towards the uh, delivery of the product. Mm. Uh, and you've got uh, regulated insurance and warranty um um, systems behind you to give you protection. But do uh, consumers really have insurance? Because, you know, there's a lot of a misconception out there with, you know, that in the papers, you know, buildings over a certain amount of levels, um, you pretty much don't have any kind of builder's insurance. I mean, oh, no, the builder's warranty is there. I mean, the, the, the warranty is there. Usually the rela- there are two relationships, though. There is the consumer um, and then there is the developer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the developer has a relationship with the builder and the consumer has a relationship with the builder and the developer. Mm-hmm. Invariably, what you find in these circumstances is that the, um, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the first course recourse is to the largest balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think, I think a lot of factors start to come in. Who, who, who are you actually buying from? What's their track record? Um, are they a Phoenix company that's been assembled to deliver the project and will disappear? I mean, there's been a bit of that uh, around of that. too. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, what have, uh, what's their track record been? What other projects have they done, et cetera, et cetera? Mm. It's a bit like, you know, if you're going to develop a brand in this space, a bit mm. like a car. I mean, if you, you know, look at VW. Now, VW had some difficulties with, um, uh, with yep. what they've been caught yep. doing. How do you recover from that? Difficult, mm. um, but you've simply got to set a standard and make sure that over a period of time you consistent, consistently deliver a good product, you're able to explain why that product's good, yeah. and you're able to explain the processes you use to get there, and you're able to do it in a way which is um, not highbrowed and, and talking down mm. or so opaque with technical nonsense mm. that it means nothing. Uh, and just have faith that that will happen because in the end we're talking about a necessity. I mean, housing is not sort mm. of an optional extra. It's yeah. something that is is a fundamental uh, requirement or a need, if you like, a human need. I'm, I'm glad you brought up cars <laughs> for a couple of reasons. <laughs> One is that in some vehicles you get a, a longer warranty than you do when you buy an apartment. Um, and also I've actually known a couple of people who have had their cars replaced because they bought lemons 
So I'm not, I don't know anyone who's had their apartment replaced because they bought a bought a lemon. But in terms of that warranty thing, because you said that they have a warranty, I just want to clarify that because we know that homeowner's warranty does not apply for buildings that are four levels or higher, correct? So therefore the buyer doesn't have a warranty for the builder, but you're saying that develop there's a the the builder has a uh, sorry the developer has a warranty from the builder. In order to commission the builder, yep. uh, they have to have in, uh, pay up if you like a, a an insurance uh, warranty uh, which is held in escrow mm. uh, by the regulator, and that is used for the purposes of mm-hmm. uh, more fundamental structural. But issues. that's quite new, isn't it? Yeah, eighteen months, two years. Yeah, something. yeah. So it's a relatively new. Only just come in. Yeah, yeah and it's about two percent of the build um, values. That oh, correct? gee, I, yeah. I've, You've caught me there. Um, the actual payout and out. No, 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 no the amount, the, the quantum amount they pay. Yeah, mm. yeah. It is, and, and it's, uh, yeah. Look, it's it's a, it's a reasonable amount of money. There's no question about it. And um, I could, I, I think two percent's right, but I, I just can't. Yeah, that's uh, fine. Give you assurance. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's, um, you know, there is. It's important to have that, but I guess all these, you know, if we we take away a lot of the lowest common denominator, which I think is going to happen, because a lot of consumers are going to say, look, t- show me some buildings you've built. And they go, well, mm. I can't really show you any quality ones. Uh, I've only been here. I'm a new developer. <laughs> you know, the people aren't going to go there, right? They're going to go to people like yourself because you've got that track record, et cetera. Um, but what are some of the consequences that we're going to start seeing for the consumers where, you know, there aren't these developers out there which are creating supply? How are the big developers going to play? Because, you know, you're going to basically be able to control the market. Um, are we going to see higher prices? Are developers going to start, you know, you know, because you're in control of the market. If, if there's no other one kind of coming in, what do you think is going to happen to the consumer? Yeah, look, I, I, it's a competitive market. When you look at who the big players are uh, in the uh, in the construction industry, I, I take that 230,000. The top 10 builders, if you talk about detached dwelling, uh, occupy around about 13, 14% of the total market. Right. It's not a lot. Um, you look, you put Stockland, Lendlease, uh, Fraser's, Mervac uh, together, all of the bigger players uh, in um, you know, Grocon, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, don't, we only control um, twos and threes and four percents of the respective markets right. uh, wow. that we're in. It mm. So it's, it's, not, it's not as uh, consolidated as, say, if you go to the UK, where you talk mm. about the top 10 can control up to 50% of the market. Okay. It's just not like that in Australia. Yep. There's what forty-two thousand uh, builders uh, in, in in Australia at the moment for a population of uh, for about two hundred and thirty thousand um, mm-hmm. uh, product produced, and that's cyclical. So, so there's there's two two points I suppose that run yeah. out of that. One is, you know, the, the the bigger players we'd like to actually increase our market share, no question about that. Yeah. But there are there are limits to which you can do that because mm-hmm. the bigger players bring with them a lot of the costs and mm. uh, and uh, compliance obligations, uh, whether they're listed, et cetera, et cetera, which means that at a certain size of project, you're not competitive. Yeah. Yep. Um, generally speaking, that's about 50 million. Um, yep. For us, we, we tend to focus on projects around about um, north of 50 to 100 million, uh, yep. thereabouts. And a bulk of a lot of projects are, are done, you know, in that way, way, way uh, smaller than that. Mm. So it's it's in that space that I think that um, uh, that – uh, that's where the impact is going to be uh, most important as to how that's managed mm-hmm. uh, in those many, many, many uh, builders and, and, and small developers in yep. the sub-50 million uh, space. Mm-hmm. Um, when markets drop off, as they uh, as they inevitably do, I mean, the only thing I know with any certainty that I've learned over the last 35 years is that markets go up and down. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, when it when it drops off, uh, then the opportunity to actually innovate and do things a, a little bit better is greater because the market demands it because you're not not competitive mm. otherwise. Mm. When the market's strong, your ability to to have the time to do that is quite limited. So, so I think we're we're going into a pause uh, period at the moment at the right time. Mm-hmm. I think some of the difficulties that you've experienced or seen have been popularised, if you like, if that's the right word. Uh, over the last, say, couple of years are a reflection of a very strong boom. Mm. What you'll see now, yeah. I think, are opportunities to be able to uh, pause, um, uh, to uh, uh, to revisit processes and systems, uh, and also to start to look at ways to differentiate yourself based on your ability to be able to deliver a high-quality product. I think that's a really – I mean, the, the last point is really interesting because I think um, – yeah, my frustration with a lot of the apartments market, for example, and also house and land packages um, and potentially townhouses as well, so probably the whole gamut. Um, <laughs> yeah, point is, the one that you're not at. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the apartments is, I feel like it's the, the biggest problem we've created is we've wasted space because we've allowed to build very poor quality, not all, but very poor quality apartment buildings. And poorly buildings. designed as well. Yeah, poorly designed yeah. from a visual point of view, but also a sustainable point of mm. view, but also they've been highly targeted to investors because that's who, the, that's who basically bought them. And, mm. you know, there's all whole areas where 80% of the apartments are owned by investors and that means 80% of people are renting and that's not great for a community potentially. Mm. But also, I guess, from the house and land packages, you know, we're potentially get, we're cutting the block sizes every year because we're trying to keep it affordable for first-home buyers. And so we're getting, you know, whether that's great for, you know, families and communities long-term. Um, potentially for townhouses, you know, I think that we're starting to change the dynamics of middle ring suburbs and, you know, are relaxing planning controls in some suburbs where, you know, it's changing the livability for those suburbs. Um, how is the, you know, cause that's really the opportunity now, right? We've got to build it, but how are we going, how are developers kind of saying, well, we really need to build a better product that suits kind of families and things like that. Do you think that's been a problem and, you know, do you think developers are going to attack it? Well, to be honest, I think... It, um, it's, it's a problem of scale um, because if you're buying a, a corner block, 800 square metres and putting three uh, dwellings on it. Um, the, it's going to put three dwellings on it. You're going to put three. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what you do. Yeah. Uh, and whereas I, 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 I think that's a, a fair concern uh, about the community seeing that as being the, you know, synonymous with changing the character of uh, of suburbs which might have been uh, developed, you know, with uh, with Art Deco or uh, yeah. uh, themes or Californian bungalows that have been really tricked up, you know, Federation sort of product which are very ornate, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but, again, but again, I think when you look at Australian cities, I mean, take a comparison. I mean, we're eight times less dense, um, Sydney and Melbourne, than Singapore, mm. uh, for instance. Uh, we won't even make the comparison with uh, with Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um our cities are were developed uh, during uh, the advent of the car, and as a consequence, the ability to be able to travel and so therefore spread uh, and still commute to work uh, is a byproduct of when our cities were created. Yeah, okay. What's yeah. happening now, though, is that um, is that uh, there there are some really interesting things that we're on just on the cusp of as. Uh, and finally, Sydney and Melbourne and and other cities around the world are reinvesting in their in their public transport, but also we're we're starting to see the electrification of mobility, mm-hmm. and the opportunity I think is for 
it, it perversely that the the origin of of our cities being so physically large. I mm. think they're second and third in terms of the physical area they occupy yeah. in Melbourne. Will implode the world, on themselves right? in the world. Yes, wow. LA, exactly. being, LA, yeah. LA being the largest. Well, just massive cities like they yeah. spread. The area they occupy. I drove out to Warwick Farm last night from Balmain. <laughs> I haven't been out that direction for a long time. I went through the new tunnel. Sorry, it's just a bit of a segue here, yeah. which is actually not an unpleasant experience going through that thing. Have you been through yep. it? Yep. Oh, it was pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, and it, it wasn't bumper to bumper, which is yep. the first time I've gone into a new freeway or a new tunnel for years and it hasn't been bumper to bumper. Um, it's because people are a bit still a bit of a tight-ass mentality. My, well, yes, and someone said to me afterwards, yes, yeah, because it costs a fortune, so I wouldn't <laughs> even know until I get, you know, <laughs> until the end of the tax year. Um, but I popped out near Parramatta and went through all these extra big roads, et cetera, et cetera, and then I just went on and on and on and on. I was like, my God, I've forgotten how big Sydney is. Yeah. It just goes on and on, yeah. But perversely, it's actually um, an opportunity so that the potential to be able to limit uh, the extent of that and then uh, redevelop and go uh, up. Uh, within the space. <laughs> and uh, and you can only go up if you've actually got the matching uh, transport infrastructure to go with it mm. to manage congestion. Why I think we're at a really interesting time is what we're seeing themes that are coming through now um, is mobility is becoming, the electrification of mobility is, is a fundamental and depending on, on uh, your, your view of how technology is adapting, but, yep. uh, but by about 2030, well, by 2025, you won't be able to buy a diesel. Uh, they'll all be hybrid. By 2030, uh, the, the size of the electrified fleet uh, will be um, significant and growing at a, a at an exponential rate. We provide um, service uh, uh, logistics services for um, uh, and assets in Europe for uh, for the big car makers. Mm. The amount that they are spending on changing their whole production system to deliver wow. electrified cars, and these are the you know the volume suppliers of uh, Volvo's of, gone. What next year? Completely electric. Yep, yeah. they're uh, the first. Right? All electric. Yeah, um, yeah. everyone. Oh, right. They're all, all introducing them. So. Yeah. So I think the first thing, and then autonomous vehicles are another step on from that. But um, but the opportunity to actually start to look at space, the spa physical space we have in Australia, and the capacity to be able to absorb more growth uh, and accommodate it in uh, in a, in a form which is far more connected, far more uh, diversified, if you like, uh, than the sort of the monoculture of product that we've tended to see yeah. develop over the last you know seventy yeah. or eighty years. I think that's actually an opportunity. Mm. Now, that will create challenges for, for planning um, because the community looks at planning to actually sort of uh, future-proof uh, the, uh, the community from, uh, from creating outcomes yep. which uh, are disconnected from, from what people's image of what, what urban living should be, look, uh, should be like. So I think there's a big challenge to land use planning because the other theme that we're seeing is that we're seeing space is actually now less... Um, uh, less um, specific to a single use. Yeah. Right. Uh, the need for spaces to be for more flexible. Mm. Look at what's happening in retail, for instance. It's a it's a harbinger for what will start to flow into and is already flowing into the workplace mm -hmm. uh, in terms yep. of office. Yeah. Yep. Is office office? Mm. Uh, it's not anymore. No, it's hotel, residential. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then what you're going to see is you're going to get a far more dynamic style of development uh, occurring provided you get these other matching elements uh, going with it, which is, you know, the, the, the electrification of uh, uh, mobility, uh, metro, uh, public infrastructure, the public realm then will start to become uh, the determinant of uh, people's emotional connection to place, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. 
all that stuff. And you start to see parts of Sydney where it's playing itself out. The wonderful work that Len Lease has done uh, down at Barangaroo, Central yep. Park's another mm. good example, et cetera, where when you get it right, it is really innovating and yep. uplifting for a community. It's now, that's the standard. That because obviously you've got to have access to a whopping great sites to be able to achieve something like that, correct? And so therefore that lends, lends itself to being only the big players that can mm. be involved in that. So you want them to be visionary and so mm. it sounds... It is exciting, and I know I think Barangaroo, and I've never I've been in some of the office spaces, but I, I haven't been in any of the apartments. But the wonderful thing about Barangaroo, and in fact uh, Central Park with Kensington Street and that sort of thing, it develops a precinct that others can use as well. So yeah. it's not necessarily just for those people That's buying right. apartments right. there. So it does become part of the greater community, which is a really interesting... And it's what gives a city a grain mm. and, you know, it, it's and it creates connections that otherwise wouldn't happen. And when we define our lives, it tends to be the sum of our connections. So we, we, we create a sense of belonging based on that connectivity as distinct from just what a place looks like. Now, I just wanted to quickly tell you about a live free online event that I'm presenting. Anybody who's interested in buying a home in Sydney, I've got a special webinar that I'm running on October the 31st at 8pm. And I'm going to reveal five strategies to find your Sydney dream home and get the upper hand on real estate agents. And there are three big secrets that I'm going to be sharing. One, to how to stop wasting time. Number two, which experts should you believe? Now, I know that by listening to this podcast, you've probably got a fair idea what I'm going to say there, but there's a couple of extras. And also number three, secret number three, how to find off-market properties. When the market tightens up, when there's not a lot of stock around, that seems to be the main thing that buyers want to know. Where can I get access to this hidden market? So I will be running this webinar and you are free and welcome to join. If you'd like to, please go and register. The website is go.gooddeeds.com.au forward slash webinar. I'll put the link in the show notes and I'd love to see you join me. So we're in Waterloo now or Redfern or wherever you want to call it, but... um, (laughs) You know, I guess this is an area which probably you're talking about, right? So, yep. you know, there's a lot of community housing or that's been built and there's towers um, and the government's going to come in and, you know, with developers to build a new metro, which is, you know, great for transport, but also, you know, knock down a few towers and build a big community. How is how is that story kind of getting out into the community? Because from what I've heard is there's a bit of a uh, upset because it's, you know, change and we don't know what's going to happen. Um, how are you, because I know you're involved or you're bidding on it, how do you think that that story is going to play out and how are you going to get the community on side? I won't talk particularly about that one because yeah. of the process, but um, but I think it's, it's no different to any other uh, project you do. The planning system is actually quite a sophisticated system from the point of view of, um, of uh, providing opportunities for engagement with communities, but but that's a base level. If you're going to do, you know, uh, if you like, precinct-wide change, and that's what we're talking about. Mm. Now, let's face it, most people don't like change no, yes, until exactly. after it happens mm. and it's actually good. Oh, we like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, or uh, after it's happened, we don't like that, and mm. uh, and people vote with their feet. So you've got to get it right. But but I think what's 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 happened over the last 20 years is that the obligations on uh, on the development industry to engage better 
to be more explicit uh, about how they're going to manage uh, change. And this is not just developers. This is government as well. Yeah. Uh, how uh, are, uh, you're able to articulate um, the process of change, um, whether it's all at once or in stages, et cetera, et cetera, what the sort of reasonable timeframes are, what are the benefits that flow out of this. So it's really communication 101 in many mm. respects, but you're doing it at scale and you're doing it in a uh, in a form which is very capital intensive, very time intensive, et cetera. And when you look at it, very stakeholder intensive too, because the thing about cities, particularly like Waterloo and Redfern, is there are so many stakeholders mm. and you're not just talking two or three people, uh, you're talking or two or three groups, you're talking dozens and dozens, if yep. not hundreds. Yep. And so to be able to manage those interests over a period of time through a change process, it's not, it's not something to do sort of for three months at the start of a project and then, um, and then stop and then finish 10 years later when you're finished. It's an ongoing process, and you've got to set yourself up to resource um, that process. Well, that's, uh, let's be frank, it's going to cost, doesn't it? it adds of course it costs, absolutely. Yeah. It's all built in um, you know, to the overall cost of it. Mm. That's why these sorts of projects, you need balance sheets, sizable balance sheets, mm -hmm. um, and Australia doesn't have enough sizable balance sheets. Mm. Um, it inevitably means offshore uh, capital as well to be able to, uh, to undertake um, projects of that scale. But because, you know, one of the one of the even though everyone sort of points at the at the jolly grey monsters around here yeah. and say, well, aren't they ugly? <laughs> well, yeah, they are. But when they do one thing really, really well, and they provide a lot of accommodation yes. for people who need it. Mm. Uh, the difficulty in the modern age is to be able to respond, you know, to provide that amount of uh, accommodation in uh, in uh, in a staged way. Uh, and still do it to the standards that we operate to now as mm -hmm. distinct from 60 or 70 years ago. Mm -hmm. Now, on the, um, in terms of, you know, one of our, you know, things with clients is that the clients will consider off the plan, I'm thinking about off the plan. Um, and from what I, my experience with a lot of the time is, is it doesn't really work from a number of reasons for an investor. If, if you know, when, when you hear people say, oh, you shouldn't buy off the plan for investment purposes, what's your kind of response to that in terms of, saying, no, you should, because there's these benefits. I guess it's, you know, there's, you know, from our view is probably lots of issues, but, you know, very little upside, but a lot of risk. You know, how, how do you think that investors should attack off the plan to actually get it right? Uh, well, look, I, firstly, I'd say some of the incentives for buying off the plan have now progressively been removed, financial incentives, I mean, in terms of your um, the, the, the mechanism was used, say, in Victoria, where uh, you're essentially only paying stamp duty on the... Um, uh, on the land component, not the uh, uh, the value of the uh, of the contract. Yeah, that that's progressively being removed. Um, I think I think I, I I'm an advocate of um, of of buying off the plan. Expect you'd expect me to say that, yes. of course, <laughs> because financially it enables the transaction, uh, the overall development to uh, to happen uh, at a uh, at an accelerated rate. Um, so that's a, a, just a, a commercial consideration. Mm. Yeah. So I think I think with the Quality of, um, I, I think, people. The two things I'd say. Firstly, buying off the plan gives you an opportunity to gain entry to an asset that you might otherwise not uh, be able to gain entry to uh, uh, if it's finished. Um, yep. the, why, why I say that is from a developer's perspective, we 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 don't just approach a project as an investor-only product. Mm -hmm. uh, we develop uh, all of our projects on the basis of. Uh, a mix. Um, some investors, some owner occupiers, 
uh, and um, of, of a variety of types, some families, some singles, some elderly, some uh, some full-blown families, etc., cetera, uh, older people, the disabled, et cetera. Yep. It's that mix uh, that you uh, that you need to infuse uh, into a project that gives it its vitality, rather than uh, all people like you, you know, twenty yep. five year olds. Uh, yep. It's on radio, <laughs> isn't it? I'm getting yeah, younger. Yeah, yeah. No, He's all, young, all, not that young. Yeah. Well, one, you, one one typecast of a, of a because yeah. that doesn't produce the sort of the diversity that you mm. want in a project to actually give it a bit more vitality. And a great for resale, right? Because exactly. you're, you're not exactly. just trying to target the millennials or the mm. downsizers. You know, there's lots of buyers if you ever want to sell. Exactly. And I'm the first to criticise parts, and we won't, won't name those areas, but where you've got um, five projects uh, in a row uh, on 2,000 square metre site where they're doing, uh, you know, 190 or 200 apartments, all um, one one yep. bedroom plus study, one bedroom or two bedroom, one bathroom. That's it. Yeah. Uh, that's the diversity you've got. And in my view, okay, it's providing accommodation, but but I think we should be smarter than that, yes. uh, and the planning system should be smarter than that mm. uh, in terms of being able to blend the product uh, and terms of being able to blend uh, the, um, the uh, in diversity, if you like. Having said that, there are there is a fine line between doing that responsibly and then doing that. For other reasons, I know one or two or three or half a dozen municipalities says, oh, no, we only want three-bedroom apartments. They must be all 110 square metres, and uh, they're, they're the only type of apartments we'll be approving in our right. location, please. Okay. Now, construction costs typically uh, run around about $3,200 a square metre. At 110, you're at about $400,000 just to build the thing. Yep. Uh, then on top of that, you'll have uh, 40 50% of that will be land, so you'll be you're, you're, you're pushing about a million dollars. Now, that's very nice if that's the sort of um, uh, people you want you in the community. That's right, buyers. if you can sell mm. them. So Is I, that I, why we've built lots of one, two betters? You know, because A, they're more affordable um, and B, they're potentially more profitable for a developer? Um, on a dollars per square metre basis, a one better is more, you'll generate more revenue per square metre on a one bedroom apartment yep. than you will on a three bedroom apartment. Mm. Yep. Um, but does that mean that it's more profitable? No, because you have to build more of them and so the con uh, the construction cost. But generally speaking, yes, there is a profit mo uh, motive in yep. doing that, but it comes at the cost uh, of uh, the diversity of product that you're looking for yep. uh, and also uh, the uh, the urban design uh, solutions that you're looking to achieve mm. because one bed is, uh, if you just line them all up on one floor, um, have a facade uh, implication, which uh, which doesn't necessarily get you where you want to get to from a streetscape point of view. Yeah, but it is, <clears throat> you know, obviously there's certain developers that don't give a rats really about a lot of those other issues you're talking about, those considerations of building a, a community and building a great yeah. place to live and also yeah. building a place where people can upgrade within it. You yeah. know, I know there's some complexes, even some older ones in Sydney, where people do... Tenants will buy in the building, in the complex. You know, people might get in with a one bed and they'll upgrade to a two or a three, and that's successful, you know, when people want I to agree. stay there. Absolutely, um, and we designed for exactly that reason. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think what I've just described, um, the consumer is not compelled uh, to do anything. When I go back mm. to, the, to, to your question, yeah. which was, well, you know, um, why, why we do what we do is to attract people in on the basis that they actually do have the opportunity. If they like the area, yep. they gain access maybe by a one better, yep. but then they can trade into a two or a three depending yep. on circumstances and how they uh, how they flow. 
Uh, they can bring uh, grandparents in, et cetera, et cetera. So the whole idea of ageing in place and what have you. Now, it's pretty easy for a person uh, to judge off the plan what the uh, the floor plans are uh, per floor uh, yeah. per, per floor plate in the building mm. and form a view. Do you want to live in a one-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bedroom only, 240 of them in one building? Yes. Well, if that's what you want to do and you haven't bothered to, um, haven't bothered to, uh, to, uh, to do your homework, yes. well, I'm not that compassionate towards that person. <laughs> it's interesting. People don't know what they don't know, though. You know, yeah. it's not, not until they're gone, oh, right, you know what I mean? So, but, yeah, I mean, they try to lease it out and there's, you know, 14 available for lease yeah, in the yeah. same building and, you know. But if you're investing, I mean, the, if you're investing, surely you've got an, an obligation to do to do. To due diligence. I and, 100% agree. That's uh, part of the purpose of this podcast. But, um, you know, it doesn't happen enough. <laughs> well, but, but, and so it mm. should, is, mm. is all I'm saying. And why, why, why we try and, um, we try and provide uh, tools to educate the market and provide information to enable people to make an informed yeah. choice. Yeah, all right. Okay. Everyone doesn't do that. That's fair enough. But again, the buyer has the obligation to make sure they do the due diligence. Mm. And when I said that, you know, you may not get access to, if you're buying off the plan, you may not get access yep. to a location. If we can sell out in uh, in in a week or two, because it's a great location with uh, that's been well thought through in terms yep. of, you know, the mix of product, where it is physically, it's got access to transport, it's got an amenity, et cetera, et cetera, all of those attributes built in, all of that um, should contribute to one of two things. One, um, sustaining value or retaining value over time, and two, potentially capital gain. Mm. Because the more the, the better the quality of the yep. environment in mm. which the, uh, the, the the dwelling is located, the higher uh, the, the more of that gets capitalized into the value of that asset yep. uh, over a period of yep. time. But if you're just wanting to do uh, negative gearing and imagine that capital gain, I mean, all property goes up, doesn't yes. it? Yes. It's just nonsense. I mean, exactly. without capital gain, negative gearing doesn't make a lot of sense. Exactly to be right. So totally it's a really, agree. really, really good point. <laughs> I mean, the reality is you're targeting home buyers with your development, you know, your, and investors. Yeah, and so investors, but with who are the prospect on. of being, yeah, yeah that's right. The, the switched on mm. investor who knows to buy in the building that's you know, got lots of different <laughs> yeah. differentiality. But also you need green space, you need a nice looking building. Of course you do. You need very good materials. Um, all these things add up because you're going away from buying a piece of land and saying how many one bedrooms can I get on this, how cheap can I build it, um, and how high can we go basically. Mm. And that's what some developers will do mm. is look at how much money can we make on this. You're probably, there's consequences where you're probably having to price your apartments probably a lot more expensive than, you know, Joe Blogs down the road who's just trying to shift a lot of one better. Do you find that your products, because they're a bit more premium, are a bit more expensive than yeah. out in the market? You get what you pay for. Yeah. That's the first thing. The second thing is we cannot um, and will not, you know, from my perspective, um, we've drawn a line, we will not be the cheapest on the market. Yeah. Because if you just take a view that you want to be the cheapest, then a whole, you have to run your business that yeah. way. And yeah. uh, there's a whole lot of decisions. And I'm not being critical about uh, about companies that actually uh, position themselves at the bottom end yep. because if you've got scale that goes with that, then that's the alternative way of being mm. able to afford a lot of um, uh, the costs associated with uh, providing assurance, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But, you know, as a business, we, we, we don't seek to be the cheapest uh, yep. provider of accommodation because we think um, uh, there is value uh, in... 
in all of those other aspects which go towards placemaking yeah. and, uh, and design. With um, – I had a question there. Oh, yeah. How does your stock get to market? It's dedicated company-owned sales teams? Yes. So you don't actually go out there to – mortgage brokers and financial planners and accountants we, and... We, well, we, we'll, we'll use channel, channels, but we'll um, um, but always channel through our own sales team because that way we can control um, who and how much and what uh, is directed that way as distinct from just going carte blanche. And, and in terms of, I mean, I, I'm a financial advisor and, um, you know, and there's mortgage brokers as well, I've seen yep. this. Um, you know, a lot of them are incentivised through, you know, owning a, getting a real estate license um, and all of a sudden they're getting a clip of a ticket um, and they're quite big commissions that are paid to referrers and things like that. How's, how does Fraser's approach to that and whether that is actually something that's conflicted and whether you're, you know, because if, if, if an advisor is receiving a commission for recommending a product, are they really acting in their best interest or are they acting in their client's best interest? And, I mean, have you noticed that that's a bit of a prolific problem because you know, I guess we oh, see it a lot. Yeah, well, I, look, I, I imagine it would be because, well, let's face it, the um, uh, agents tend to work for the seller, not the buyer yep. uh, as a general rule. And um, so from our point of view, why why we do it the way we do it is because we don't want any one party uh, overexposed in any particular project. Uh, we'll select how much product we want to put into A, a channel, and B, into the investor line. We'll, we'll deliberately clamp that down because for the reasons we just talked about before. Yep. Uh, and in those instances, we don't pay um, uh, over the market. Um, uh, and I, I know of developers who are paying 7s, 8s, 9s, 10% for offshore mm, purchases. Yep. Crazy stuff. So the interest in being honest in terms of how in representing the product uh, its longevity prospects, uh, you know, the integrity of the design, et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that uh, goes out the window uh, in in return for uh, volume sales to um, uh, to fill pre-commitment books to enable capital to be, uh, sorry, uh, borrowings to be for construction purposes to be triggered. Yep. You know, the one of the benefits that we've got, uh, given the business that we're, the scale it is and, and how it's funded is that um, that's not the primary driver uh, for us. We just yep. want to make sure that we're actually uh, placing enough investor product through the right channels on uh, sensible uh, commission structures to achieve yep. uh, a segment of, of sales uh, that then becomes part of yep. a broader blended um, a range of sales that give us what we want in terms of a balance. Do you have a benchmark percentage of investor versus owner-occupier? Uh, look at its highest, it's 50% uh, of a building. Say say a building is uh, 100 uh, dwellings, uh, something of that nature, maximum would be 50. Yep. Um, during the absolute uh, boom, what, going back to 2016, say, it got up as high as 55%. But generally speaking, we keep it around about that 30% mark. Yeah. But some buildings are 100, right? Yeah. You know, but if they're in a precinct of yeah. say ten buildings, you might that will be the investor uh, building. But yeah. then the uh, right. five others are a family, uh, family <laughs> mm. buildings, yeah. and so you end up getting the blend that way. Yeah, and I, I guess um, so we've had a few companies go under recently, and I think there's a, uh, you know, all the stats are there, approvals for, you know, high rises, and even mm. you know, um, kind of house and land packages have kind of come back a lot in the last twelve months. There's a lot of less demand for the product, and they're falling off a cliff a little bit. How do you think, you know, does the Raylan sort of catastrophe there where they went under surprise you and do you think there's going to be a lot more of these kind of builders that 
are going to struggle with things like settlement risk coming up because of low valuations. Do you think this is going to start to really play out in the next couple of years well, as every boom does go to a bust? Yeah, well, it's all uh, it's already been playing out. I heard the um, insolvency numbers, I think, about 169 builders in uh, New South Wales went broke um, last quarter, um, wow. which, is, which is a spooky number. Yeah. But all I'm saying is that uh, all I would like to say, well, firstly, your comment that demand's not there, demand's there. Uh, no question about that. What's happening is that you're happening. You're finding people uh, unable to be able to realise that demand or express that demand by by committing by virtue of the uh, credit conditions that are uh, that are now um, uh, playing out in the market. Uh, just to be clear on that, so you're talking about the individual consumers who want to buy a property are hamstrung because they can't get access to credit. Yep. Or you're talking about builders who would like to build product can't get access to credit. Both. Right. Okay. Both. Uh, so, so the, the on. Because I'm a broker, um, and you know, the, yes, last year, 2018, without doubt, it was um, the banks just went, you know, crazy. Basically, <laughs> we couldn't get loan applications through, and I, we, we never get declined loans. There's no reason to get a declined loan. You, you know, all the information before you lodge it. You know mm. what the bank's credit policy is. You shouldn't get a declined loan, so we never got them. Um, but in the Royal Commission, we were getting plenty of declined loans for the banks. Just said, you know what, we don't like you as a customer. Even though you're a great customer, we just don't want to lose your money. Go somewhere else, mm. which is just crazy. And that's what it did happen in the Royal Commission. Mm. This year, it's definitely not the case. So, you know, if if as long as you, unless you've got something seriously wrong with your credit file or something like that, banks want to lend now. And so I'm so, I, I, that does, is it not the customer? Is it the product that the banks aren't going to lend on though? Is it that they're not willing to lend on new property? Uh, oh, no, we're not finding that. We're just finding it's taking a lot longer. And most of the data that we're referring to here is all lagged. Yeah, um, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So what we what we've seen is um, is uh, and you know the lead up the first half of this calendar year was very you know was plagued with uncertainty yeah, for heaven's yeah. sake. And so no one really wanted to do anything because they had no idea what the future held. Yeah. Yeah, um, particularly true. from a, a residential perspective. So post the election, yeah, um, uh, with the outcome, um, <laughs> a lot of that un uncertainty has been removed, and we have seen a significant, gotcha. almost immediate lift in inquiry, which is a lead indicator for uh, for lift in sales. Yeah, and we weren't too um, prepared to actually call a corresponding lift in sales until we actually saw it, mm. and we're seeing it. So okay, got you. It, it's shifted. Yeah, because I mean, obviously the the Price growth figures in New South, in Sydney of oh, it was one point seven percent or something for yeah. September. It's, that's that's boom time, um, and one point six or something for August. Like a, that's that's pretty sizable. Yeah, I think that's just a bounce though. To be honest, it's uh, all. Yeah, I, I don't. I wouldn't expect to see a lot of significant price growth from here on, and that's fine because I think we'll actually go into a period of it just sort of bubbling along. Well, I hope so. To be quite honest, it would be nice, but, but it, unfortunately, some, the cycle tends not well, to behave that way. Well, that's it, and we need some stock, but also, yeah. as you said, there's pent up demand. You yeah. know, the reality is because people didn't buy for two years doesn't mean they didn't want to buy. No, and so now they're all out getting themselves ready and to if buy. And if you look at the actual quantum, everyone's patting themselves on the back in New South Wales for uh, for being able to hit their um, hit hit latent demand two years running. They did that two years running in the last 15 years. Right. So how, how does that, what do you mean by that? By that, I mean, if you actually take household formations, uh, the demography, mm. uh, uh, disaggregate the demography and work out um, uh, what uh, underlying demand is, yes. uh, add uh, natural increase and mm. then immigration, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the the quantum uh, of uh, of households that could express demand in terms of either new rent or new yeah. uh, uh, new, new new housing purchases 
uh, was only actually absorbed twice in 2016 and 2017. And then it stopped. Mm. Uh, prior to that, going back to what, just around the GFC um, uh, period, New South Wales is actually, deli- sorry, Sydney, I should say, uh, was delivering the same amount of housing as Adelaide was. So yeah. actually on that, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. So you're saying that basically for every person that wanted to buy a property, there was a property sold effectively for 2006 or built or- For two years. For two years. Yeah. And that was the- coincided with the last two years of the boom. And so if we just let it run, wouldn't it just then we just would have actually gone into a nice little slow market conditions by natural forces? Yeah, it never unfortunately happens that way. <laughs> but what I'm saying I is mean, it's, it's the actual actual completions of dwellings yeah. matched underlying yeah. demand. Now, yeah. there's always there's – a, it's a bit of a misnomer in the way those statistics work because of the lag. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. But on the same token, I think it just comes back to this question about supply. Mm. Uh, the ability to be able to supply underlying demand is uh, is still challenged and everything that we've just been talking yeah. about yeah. won't help that. The other other indicators are just look at what's happening to household occupancy rates um, in Sydney. Mm. Uh, again, they're, yeah. they're ticking up. Why? That's because people just can't leave. Yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, vacancy rates haven't shot through the uh, – everyone's saying, oh, well, it's going to be – it's going to be uh, – no. um, well, they uh, went up considerably, but they seem to have plateaued now. Yeah, that's right. Mm. They're sort of roughly in the range of a balanced market, around about that three-ish percent thereabouts vacancy rate. That's a balanced mm. market. So, I mean, you're, we're, adding up, we're growing our population. We've yep. underbuilt properties for so long, and then in 16, 17, or 17, 18, or whatever the years lot. was, you know, we, we built enough. Yep. And, you know, if we don't keep building, which is what's, you know, likely to happen over the next three or four years, unless we, you know, start building again, we're going to start having supply shortage again, you know, because we're going to keep growing our population. Mm. I just worry though over the next couple of years though, um, because a lot of properties were sold in that 16, 17, 18, in the height of the boom. And like you said, some developments take, you know, 12 years to build, but there's a lot of buildings that are still haven't been built. They're still in the, the cranes are up, it's still uh, in the process are you a bit worried about kind of settlement risk? Maybe not from your business, but in terms of a lot of other builders where valuations aren't going to come in on contract price? Um, oh, well, the, the answer is yes, that that'll be a, a, a an ongoing issue, but it'll it'll wash itself out over a period of time and mm. it'll probably take another a year or so before that happens. We are seeing, um, uh, we're seeing some interesting dynamics and I know, I know this is a, going back into history, but with the GFC, when the GFC hit, yeah, um, in valuers, uh, and I, I love valuers; they're 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 very professional people. But but we're being <laughs> instructed uh, to value at eighty percent uh, of um, loan. right, yeah, and they're. PI insurance, big pun. Do, do you mean? And that was, was dictated them? not by not by the bank, but by the PI insurance. Wow. Okay. Coming out of New York. Right. And so what you effectively had was uh, whatever that whatever the uh, the contract Patrol. price started eighty percent mm. because we're not going to lend any more than that, and it's eighty percent of that. Wow! So it's eighty percent of eighty, which is what sixty four percent. So what you had was shortfall. inevitably uh, a shortfall, mm. which is made up either by equity or some mm. other means. Now it's easy to say, oh, you'll just make it up in equity. Um, well, not you for know, a first home buyer, it isn't not it? for a first mm. home buyer. So, yep. so I think that's going to play itself. Not that because that that dynamic is not happening different. at the moment. Um, yep. But I think you'll always have uh, valuation um, conundrums, and that goes back to you know the, the original decisions about well, what price uh, price level did you set yourself at? 
what the individual's consumers' search, uh, financial circumstances are, et cetera, et cetera. All of that's being taken into account more rigorously now than it probably was, say, 10 years ago. And is Fraser's inclined to uh, – so, okay, a lot, a lot of buyers think – that if they can't settle on a property, they'll just lose their deposit and they don't realise they can be sued mm. for a whole bunch of other things. Does Fraser's tend to go aggressive on that sort of thing or do you find it doesn't happen very often? Most people find a way. I can't remember one where we've sued anyone for performance, mm. um, but we have well, withheld deposit. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, a, that's the well, risk. Well, they got a flight then, you, didn't they, I mean, <laughs> if you didn't sue them? Yeah, mm. I mean... Um, but yeah, it's, I mean, holding a deposit, you know, that's a, a good result sometimes for, mm. for people because, you know, if they, um, you know, if, it's, if the settlement price does come in a lot lower, they've signed an unconditional contract. Yeah. I mean, technically the developer could come to them for the, you know, the remaining and then also penalty interest. Yeah. And, you know, I've seen mm. that for clients where, mm. you know, developers have come to them and basically the only way she got out of it was she had to buy a different one in the block. And the developer said, look, well, oh, you wow. can't buy the two bed. I know you've got enough cash to buy one of the old one bedders. Why don't you buy that and we'll walk away? Oh, um, yeah. Wow. Well, it's mm. fun, but we yeah. we yeah we tend not to to um, to engage in that sort of stuff. But but it also comes back to t- sales policy, if you like, yeah. within mm. the organisation. I mean, if you if you're taking you know one percent deposits and all this sort of nonsense, well, that's just complete stupidity. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, true. Ten uh, percent deposit usually gives you the coverage that you need to be able to. Uh, to take that property, resell it, whatever the differential in uh, that you had to do on pricing to uh, to actually get there, and we've found that's generally speaking covered it. Right. Yeah, gotcha. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So if you didn't, you know, you've as a business, you're not really losing out. So you kind of say, well, if you can't settle, that's fine. We'll just keep your deposit, and we'll get we'll move well, on. We'd prefer it didn't happen, but yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it does happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the risk of buying. You know, you, you potentially could lose it. I mean, just on the building. Um, you mentioned there's about 160 or something or 16 builders that have gone under. 160. 160. Um, you know, I guess how is this going to, you know, because this is one of the risks that I think a lot of people didn't really understand when they buy an off the plan, which, and I agree wholeheartedly that it's all about due diligence, buying good builders, getting into blocks that have kind of multifaceted. But let's say you didn't do that, you know, and, and they've gone on with a, a builder that potentially goes under like a Rallon or one of these 160 you know, how, how does a, a person recover from that and, and how do they protect themselves from, you know, getting stitched up from a builder? Yeah, it's hard. Well, you don't know what the builder's circumstances are when you're, uh, when you're engaging them. Mm. <clears throat> um, that, that's difficult. I mean, due diligence is, is another uh, factor. But again, you're, um, with the way uh, the building sector, particularly the detached uh, dwelling uh, sector operates, that's, that's difficult. Mm. Uh, but in those circumstances, I mean, all's not lost. You can always get another builder to come in and yep. uh, and finish it. Unfortunately, that's expensive uh, yeah. to do because they have to pick up um, someone else's work. Uh, and um, but then there are, there are uh, forms of insurance you can take to actually get that. Although that's getting really hard to get now because yeah. what's happening in the insurance sector is um, uh, it's going through some quite disruptive times uh, as well, yeah. uh, particularly in Australia. Is that just most likely going to lead, if you know, because it's going to come back at some point, be just like higher premiums and less plays in the insurance market, so they're going to, you know, you know, charge a lot more. But I guess that they'd be saying, well, there's certain things they're not going to insure for. That, yeah, well, that's it, a big problem. Isn't there's it? evidence that 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 is actually happening mm. now. The underwriting is going from, you know, you can get five underwriters uh, five years ago, now you're getting uh, one, mm. um, and there's a consequence and then there. The price and, goes up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and are a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Rod, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. A property dumbo. Mm. Now, what's that? Oh, okay. oh I did say it on the email. That's Every, right. oh, I know, yeah. I know. Yes, I, I, but I've forgotten Actually, what it is. Actually, I've got one. Don't worry. We'll start, have a little chat about this one. So the Rallon. We might have one first. Oh, you might, sorry, do you have one? No. No. The, no. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't look like you had one. Sorry, sorry jumping in. So the... I think a property Dumbo is though, and I feel very sorry for them, but all those people that had uh, bought off the plan from Rallon and had signed a release of deposit form in return for getting 15% interest on their deposits and lost the lot. So they don't have anyone, they can't even, they're not even a uh, credit. they're not a creditor anymore. Um, mm. That's got to be a Dumbo. Have you heard of that happening before that happened? Yeah, I have. Yes. And it's uh, it's reprehensible in yeah. my view. Mm. It's interesting. I've read a few articles on that and they did target, target a certain um, demographic and a different certain nationality. It's a very and, deliberate. Um, mm, and it was uh, the whole marketing spiel and the sales team, et cetera. It wasn't quite quite naughty, uh, if you put it that way. But, I mean, have you have you got in terms of any stories where you think that you know, mistakes that property buyers make where you think, you know, like if you didn't do that, you could have avoided that. So, you know, in all oh. the years of kind of people, I mean, even the development space, I'm sure there's yeah. things that developers do where they just didn't think it through and all of a sudden they've just, you know, basically blown their business up. Have you seen that? Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I'll stick with the buyer buyer analogies though. I, I This is this is actually... Um, it's the emotional uh, uh, nature of, of of house buying, and when <clears throat> when you see a dynamic playing out where where people know what they can afford, but then they've emotionally fallen in love with whatever it is, and they can't afford it, uh, but they commit um, anyway, uh, and then when it comes uh, when it comes to the point where they realise what they've done, yeah. uh, buyer's remorse usually sets in within the week, yeah. uh, etc., and um, the stories that get presented uh, and the emotional um, uh, the emotional um, exchanges that inevitably occur in those circumstances, because I, I don't know how many of those I've had to deal with over the years, but um, you you just wonder how it is that people get themselves into those situations. Uh, they allow their their heart to uh, to uh, to uh, rule their head, yes. and then they find they're in a set of circumstances where they. Uh, there was no way known they could ever have performed on the uh, on the contract in the first place, and so they they throw themselves on the uh, uh, on the largesse of the um, of the vendor, and in most cases will um, if it's legitimate, uh, will will come up with a way out uh, for them. But <clears throat> because there is always that um, the legitimacy factor, people then start to embellish uh, the whole thing, and it just becomes a bit. You, you just wonder how it is people put themselves through it's that. Interesting. And you, so you, it's it happens enough for you to sort of, you know, it, it's it's shake your head, yeah. 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 Oh God, it's interesting. Though. I mean, that it happens whether you're buying a new or established or 
the, the same problem happens, right? You go to an auction, oh, yeah, you, for you, sure. you know, or you go to an open home and you're like, God, I love this. I can't actually, we were going to try to buy something at 1.5 and this is 1.75. Can we do it? You know, yes, we can get the loan from the broker. Let's go for it. Yeah. Money's Re- cheap at the moment. Don't yeah. you worry about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and it happens in booms and it's, uh, I feel like it's going to start happening now mm. because mm. of that situation. It's interesting though, but you know, I, I worked in sales. My first job was, was in sales and, um, you know, one of the, the, the roles of sales, though, is all about that urgency. It's all about creating that mm. scarcity. And, you know, I'm sure not saying your sales team, but the whole development industry is built on selling the dream. we got to close and, a deal. And getting people to be emotionally invested. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. you know, I guess it's like, you know, they're kind of sitting ducks, really. They'll go into a display suite and then the, the sales team's there to get that emotion going and to get them to commit to something because if they don't commit, they don't commit. So it's mm. hard to let those buyers walk out the door and not let them fall in love and get mm. them to commit. How do you deal with that? Depends on how you set your remuneration up for your sales team. If mm. it's yeah. complete, completely incentive-based, you get exactly what you're just talking about, yeah. which yeah. is uh, who cares. <clears throat> yeah. um, that's just not the way we operate. Um, you can't that. operate that way. Um, because if you, 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 what's happening at the moment is people are taking uh, – the, the thing that, the thing that you characterise as a, uh, a retreating market is – uh, the time that it takes for people to make decisions. People are much more worried about everything, mm. um, uh, you know, what the future holds, where their jobs have got, what, what's happening, all sorts of things. Yep. And so as time stretches out, uh, in the peak boom, we were, we were transacting usually in about 40 days, yes. uh, thereabouts from first inquiry to completion. Now it's running at around about 12 weeks, so mm. about you know, okay. three times that. That's all right uh, because if you're pro- if you're confident in your product and you're confident that you've actually got uh, a, 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 a value proposition and a and a product which is uh, differentiated from the alternatives that could be considered, which is in that market, <clears throat> then it's all right for people to take time. And as long as you don't sell it. <laughs> But that 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 yeah. happens too, and yeah. Yeah, but well, then if you if you provi- take time next if time. you if yeah. you're providing an ongoing I mean, yeah. ongoing product supply, yeah. then there's another product. I mean, yeah, got yeah. You. the thing is that people sometimes think, oh, that's the only thing that will ever yeah. that that's the only product that will ever satisfy me. Yeah. Have you you know you've been how the established markets exactly the same. Oh, there yeah. will always sure. be a, a product available. But you've just got to keep keep. That's your... actually probably one of the benefits of buying off plan. Can't believe I'm saying this, but <laughs> if you're buying established at that time and for the foreseeable future, there That's is right. only that one That's available. Right. Whereas with with off the plan, there's a whole floor of them or whatever. Yeah. And I think if you've got that elongated relationship mm. with the buyer, then um, good salespeople know exactly what they're capable of uh, funding, yeah. and uh, and they can direct them accordingly. Mm. Uh, and we've got some people, long-term uh, salespeople, and within 10 minutes they'll be able to tell what this individual can gotcha. afford, yep. what type of product they're appropriately um, uh, should be directed towards, uh, what their likely time frame is going to be, um, and, and they can do it in four yeah. or five questions. Yeah. I've tried to be a salesperson because we u- usually do this as a, you know, a, 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 I, I sort of, if I'm going to say it, I'm going to actually do it yourself. Yeah. Bloody useless at it, yeah. I have to say. <laughs> I, I could not figure out. I spent 25 minutes with one individual and the, the, the salespeople said, what did you spend all your time with that person? I says, oh, I just wanted to get their name. You know, I just, if I, if I could get their name, I think I'd be actually on the way. Yeah. Says, Look, you didn't ask five questions. These are the questions you should have asked. Yeah. They were never going to be in the no, market. They were just kicking the toll. Why are you wasting your time? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. That's as well. Okay, thanks very around. much. You're smart enough to be CEO, but not smart enough to ask those five questions. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's sad, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> no, that's brilliant. Look, thank you so much for your time, Rod. I, that was a, a wide-ranging conversation. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, no, don't apologise. That's why we wanted you here, so um, that we could tackle some of those those questions and, you know, we had... Well, covered in real gamut there, as per usual. So thank you for all your time and your expertise. Thank you, okay. Rod. And I think the big um, takeaway for me is when people are looking at this space is to buy in those buildings that are, you know, multifaceted, very much targeted mm. to the owner-occupier. Do your due diligence. You know, mm. your bigger, bigger builders that aren't going to be, you know, sticking around, that aren't going to get into the, you know, going bankrupt. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things people need to do if they're going to play in this space. and. To be honest, I think businesses like yourself will be the ones that do create the cities of the future. So, you know, good luck with that. Thank you very much. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Just following on from the conversation with uh, Rod about investors and buying into brand new buildings. Now, as you know, Chris and I, we're not advocating that you go and buy off the plan, but it actually, there's some principles that we discussed in that conversation that do apply regardless of whether you're buying off the plan, new or old. And that is really looking for that diversity of person and buyer within the building. And I think that that was a really interesting point and the fact that Fraser's uh, seek to create that diversity in their buildings and complexes is quite an interesting thing to consider as well. They're a big company. I mean, you know, they've got loads of really smart people coming out with their strategies. So I guess if they're looking to build complexes or buildings where you've got quite a lot of diversity in terms of the type of person that lives there, then that's a clue as an investor to consider the same sort of thinking when you're looking at buying an apartment. Now, whether it's one building and you want to make sure that there's a variety of different types of footprints or floor plans in that building and the different types of people that are buying in and living in that building, or whether you're buying in a precinct where you're looking to make sure that there's a good diversity and a depth of buyer pool, because that is really, in terms of longevity and in terms of ongoing capital growth, they're the sorts of things that really make a difference. Join us next week when we have another episode all about auctions. So this is insider's view in terms of what good auctioneers do to get people bidding. What's really going on in the psychology of vendors, buyers, agents and auctioneers during an auction, in the lead up to an auction and after an auction. We talk about making pre-auction offers. We talk about negotiating after it's passed in. We talk about a whole bunch of things relating to buying property at auction. Our guest is Bill DeFagley. He's actually an auctioneer and an auctioneer coach. So this is fantastic stuff. We hope you can join us. Now, I just want to tell you quickly about a property investment show that Chris and I are both presenting on. This is an online event that runs between the 6th and the 10th of November this year. Now, you can get free tickets on propertyinvestmentshow.com.au. Chris is doing a presentation, I'm doing a presentation, and also some of the guests we've had in the podcast are doing presentations, such as Kevin Turner, Pete Wargent, Jane Slacksmith, Kate Bacos. Now, I do just want to quickly caveat that whilst we're encouraging you to check this out, you do need to be discerning by promoting this we're not endorsing every single speaker nor every single
single message on there. Now, you will know what I'm talking about once you start delving in there. Just be careful. Look for the simple messages where experts are really focusing on sharing simple foundational concepts, not get rich quick stuff. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.